This is the Balancing Act by Security Compass, your guide to going fast while staying safe in today's digital world. Hi, everybody. My name is Kevin Delaney, Director of Solutions Engineering at Security Compass, and welcome to this episode of the Balancing Act. Today, I'm joined by Brian Pitts, Senior Director of Product Security Governance at Johnson Controls. Hi, Brian. How you doing? Great. How are you guys? I'm doing well, thanks. So why don't we get started? Why don't you tell us a little bit about Johnson Controls, the work that the company does, and your role there? Absolutely. So Johnson Controls is a uh, what I consider the premier building management company. We have a principal focus in helping build companies design smart buildings. So you know, when you think about buildings, there's a lot of different components to that. It's fire, it's security, it's HVAC. So the great value that I think Johnson Controls really brings to the brings to the uh, to the market is a a new innovative strategy that kind of converges all those capabilities or domains into uh, an effort to bring a single uh, interface to all those systems that manage you know, our buildings. And we're trying to do it in a way that's smarter, more efficient for our, for our customers. So if, if you were to step back, that's the big goal and big challenge that we're up to facing at Johnson Controls. Awesome. And what's, uh, could you detail a little bit about your role and what you do at Johnson Controls? Sure. We have a, a product security function and it's really composed of uh, about four key components. And one of those, we do a security operations. We have a group that does tooling, our DevOps security tooling. We have another group that really focuses on customer interactions and helping our customers understand the security that we put in our products. And then lastly, the group that I work with is called governance. So we really go after helping our teams understand requirements um, that we want to see in our products. And also we help them design the products. So we do a lot of architecture design about how do we build in some core features that we want our customers to leverage when they go to implement our, our products. Awesome. Now, I, when I read a little bit about your background, I understand you also spent a fair bit of time with the U.S. Army and National Guard on right. securing some pretty critical mission systems prior right. to taking your role at JCI. How did that prepare you for your shift to helping the private sector protect their products? Yeah, it's interesting. There's, you know, a lot of people say that's, those are very unique fields. You wouldn't say as much, but that's really not the reality. The same operational technologies that we use to run buildings we also use to run weapon systems, radar systems. And so fundamentally, the core backbone or core infrastructure that secures and runs all those things runs on almost the identical infrastructure. So when you think about a building, it's a series of system of systems that run, right? It's fire systems, it's security systems, it's HVAC systems, but they all run inside a larger system, which is the building. And then if you look at a something you would do in the military, you've got a radar that talks to a missile that talks to a, what we call a command and control system. And each one of those in and itself is a distinct system, but in order to work well, they have to interoperate, right? So I got to have data from the radar to talk to the missile, to talk to the guy who says, yeah, that's a good target. So very same construct needs to be, is, is being applied to buildings. For a long time, buildings were done in domains. And the fire system didn't talk to the security system, didn't talk to the, but as, as we've seen, there's a convergence happening where, hey, I want to turn a room off when there's, I want to turn the HVAC off when there's a fire. I don't want to continue to push all those bad things that are happening. I don't want to keep feeding oxygen into the space where there's a fire. So 
there's just this natural convergence of saying we need to have these things talking to each other. So it, the same security principles I learned in military are very applicable in building management systems. Absolutely. Now, more operationally speaking, when you start to look at the way development and security might differ between the, the, the public sector and the private sector, one thing that I've heard from other people in positions similar to yours is they sometimes notice that there's more friction between development and security in, in the private sector. Just the uh, chain of command is a little different and, and expectations are different. Is this something that you're, you've seen? Yeah, there's always, in, we've talked about this, uh, that there is there is a tension sometimes, right, that exists. What, what we, I think what has really changed, and I've seen it in the almost four years that I've been out of the military and working at my previous employer and then here at Johnson Controls, is that, that there used to be a day when you really had to explain to development teams the risk of cybersecurity if they don't do things right. That I, I find fewer and fewer people make that argument anymore. But what they do want, um, and they acknowledge that they have to do security. What they struggle with is, I want to do it, but I don't know how to do it. I don't know what to do. And so they're looking for ways and tools that help them know what they need to accomplish. And because what we would do so often in security is we would move the, move the cheese on them. They do something, and then all of a sudden, uh, the release, oh, you got to do this. And they're like, hey, just tell me what I've got to do and, and help me get there. But we, I think we've really seen a good change in this regard that people are really embracing security. They're just looking for good advice on how to implement it. Yeah. And, and at the end of the day, the advice has to be actionable, right? It has to be something that it can't just be a headline. It has to be detailed enough that developers can follow instructions. And it has to be in a format that they don't need to go looking for it. It has to be presented to them in a way that is compatible with the pace that they're expected to work at. So definitely a lot of commonalities in, in that respect. So obviously being in the IoT space, you've seen that the IoT revolution has really changed the attack surface and security considerations for hardware manufacturers over the last four years and more. That obviously has really forced them to adapt quickly without compromising on security. When you talk to your peers in the industry, are there any common themes to the challenges this kind of rapid acceleration has posed for them? You know, I think the thing that we've seen as I've talked to other folks that I know in the space, I think what we work hard at is trying to make sure that the entire process is well thought through. So from the day that we uh, manufacture device, that we do the right things from putting what we call birth certificates on devices. So like we know, hey, when this device is manufactured through that supply chain, and by the time it gets to the customer, we can provision it, we can do it in a secure way. So yeah, I think there's, for a lot of us, I think a lot of our products, we just, we did the best we could to put the product in a secure manner and then just gave it off to the customer and said, hey, it's really up to you. I've made it as secure as I can. What I think the biggest thing that's changed in IoT is now what we're seeing is customers allowing us to connect to that device even after it's in their environment. So that's one of the big values that I think JCI is starting to see and trying to leverage is we have domain expertise on how to put a security system in these groups, other companies, that's not their expertise. They don't know how to secure a secure security system or a fire system, but we do. And I think what we're seeing is that there's a more of a willingness to allow these, our customers allow us as the OEM to help them 
implement security. So as you talk about IoT, I think there is a come to a realization that there's so much out there that you have to rely on. They're, the customer's allowing you more flexibility to help manage those devices on their behalf. And I think that's probably the thing that you're seeing so many people go after now is trying to help customer securities. Because if you're a CISO running a large organization, you can have theoretically a million endpoints between cameras and all these smart devices that are going around. How can you fiz- How can you potentially keep up with all that? And I think there's going to be, you're going to see more and more reliance on providers like JCI and other companies come and say, we'll help you do the management of these environments because that's where our expertise is. And we'll build all the hooks in to help you, you know, protect those environments. And do you, do you think it's had like a material impact on the skill set specifically that you hire for when you're oh, building our these space? products? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. We, we're asking folks to understand the bigger picture. So like when we used to go hire uh, an application engineer, he would have deep experience in setting algorithms for set points in HVAC systems. But now they have to have a broader understanding of the system of system. They have to understand that I'm not just a thermostat. I am part of a larger system. You know, but what I do, I have connectivity to an to a engine that makes decisions about when to turn the air on and when to turn it off. So I think what we've, we've learned is that developers have to have a little larger perspective than they're used to having. They can't be single depth on one topic. They need to have a multitude of understanding how to integrate with other platforms, how to ingest data that typically in the past, they probably didn't have that level of expertise. So when they're maybe not coming with that level of expertise, but you've identified uh, kind of people that are, are gonna be a good fit for the critical roles in the organization, how are you approaching training those people and getting them up to speed on kind of the convergence between your traditional business, which is all in HVAC and product manufacturing. And now everything is suddenly a lot more internet connected. You're in a more connected consumer's home. There's a lot more devices in play. How are you scaling out that guidance? That, that's, that is a uh, daunting challenge, right? To think about for a minute when you say, Hey, I've got a lot of these folks who have grown up in a, like you said, in a very domain-specific experience, like I design a thermostat. And so what you have to do is you, you have to give them exposure to newer technologies more often. And one, we, fe- we put a lot of energy into the platform we use for learning, and we, exp- we give that to them free and say, guys, you need to go out here and expose yourself to new opportunities, new ways to connect. And I think time there's been this, you know, and a lot of the bigger companies do it. I'm sure Google and Microsoft would tell you that, but we really truly believe that like our development teams, they need dedicated time to go do learning. They can't be constantly coding hour after hour. You've got to carve out some space for them. If not, you'll get the same thing over and over because that's all they know. They've ne- So we really, we're trying to change the paradigm for our development teams to say, hey, it's good to take a, two hours a week to go out and do self-learning um, and go out there and read. It's, it, that's what we're trying to encourage in our space. Is that something that's primarily encouraged by the security group or do you feel you have broad buy-in to that across um, the, the other yeah. functional groups? No, I agree. I think it's you're, you'll see pockets where some developing engineering managers and development managers really espouse that. And then there's groups that are more traditional and maybe are a little reluctant to do that. But I think our culture is changing and evolving to be more of the, this whole learning 
culture they talk about, a learning organization, but it takes commitment. It, it's something you have to invest in. You've got to say, it's okay. Hey, I'm going to take, it's okay for my guys to take two hours a week to go do something or four hours a week to go learn about something. And it's a journey we're on to keep our organization innovative and fresh on some of these new ideas. Now, as it relates to that with security, have you embedded security resources within your development teams or have you found a way to get developers to really be motivated to level up their, their security yeah. domain knowledge like that? It, so we, we have a two-part effort there, right? So we, we have a really strong program called Security Champions. And so we call them our layman's security team. I think we're running it. gosh, we, we just did a relaunch of that program and I think we're at about 300, apologies, not 300, but about 120 across our development, all of our engineering staff. And some of those are highly engaged and there are, you know, some that are not, not as engaged as I would like, but we're trying to get them to be engaged in our program. Uh, we lean on them extensively. Then backing them up is a team of dedicated security architects, full-time security professionals that we back up. We try to... Our goal is for every 10 champions, we try to have an architect. That's the general guideline that we try to follow. We're kind of there. We have about 11 business units that we operate in. And we have, we have roughly one architect on each of those business units. So that kind of plays out to the number we're looking for as far as that. It's great progress though. And it's not something that ever happens overnight. I think a few episodes ago, I actually did a podcast about security champions. And this is the way we see most high performing large enterprises really try to scale security because you, you reach that point where there's only so many people you can hire in security. And that's just the reality of the talent pool. And you have to have an effective means of communicating between the interests of engineering and the minimum standards that have to be met and, and the not just the minimum, but the ideal standards that have to be met for the organization, for the security of the products that you put out. And we always see the best performing organizations are the ones with a, a functional and flourishing security champions program. So that's really great to hear. Yeah, we, like we said, it, it, we're working hard at it. We know we got some more work to do there, but it's something that we agree that's it's critically important. Like you said, there's just not enough professional security and there is a limited budget and there's not a, you know infinite space to go hire as, as many people as we like. But this is a great way for us to replicate our, ourselves. In our, and another great thing, Kevin, that comes from having a great security champion firm, it also builds our own work, our bench of future security professionals. So we love when we get a security champion. Matter of fact, this year, we hired two of our security champions as full-time architects. That's huge. And because they know the business, they've been developers, and it's just a natural progression for them. So they're, they're, and they have instant credibility with their development teams because like they've been in the trenches with them and uh, they know the products. And so they almost, they, they hit the ground running. There's no uptake time. And we just have, they have maybe some learning to do on security side, but we've been coaching them for two or three years already. And they really hit the ground running for us. And it keeps them in the organization. It keeps them engaged with their careers. You're offering them opportunities to grow. It's a win. The business has a huge win from it. So that's really great to hear. So shifting gears to what brought you here today, SD Elements. I, I understand Johnson Controls purchased SD Elements just before you arrived at the company. Is that correct? Yep. Yeah. They, uh, I joined probably four, 15, 
15 months ago. And I think we had just engaged uh, Security Compass on bringing SD elements into the company. Awesome. Now, I understand you had a little bit of experience with SD elements before Johnson Controls. When you were first introduced to it, what were your initial impressions of the platform? It's interesting. One of the things when I, at the previous company was at, where I got to see, you know, I first saw the demo of the product, I was, this is table stakes. Why has someone not helped us with this before? Because when I sat out at my previous company and started trying to figure out hey, what do we tell developers? I would go through the questionnaire with our development teams and half these things have no applicability to the platform you're on. They're just completely, and the teams, one, either they don't understand what the question is and they're spinning it. Hey, how do I do this? You're like, man, you can't even do that on your platform. Disregard that. And they were spending a lot of time trying to understand it. And they were just getting frustrated. And then you scare a lot of people off, to be honest with you, Kevin, when you send them an Excel spreadsheet that's got, 300 entries in it. And some security champions like, I got to do this and develop, write code. How do I do this? This is overwhelming. So my impression, when I saw it, I was like, man, this is what we've needed to get after this problem set. It it wasn't a hard sell when I understood the concept. It made absolute sense to me. Yeah. And being on the other end of those uh, Excel sheets before, when you're going through it and you're like, man, half this stuff doesn't even apply to me. It, you lose a lot of enthusiasm for continuing with the process and wanting to, to really give a lot of detail because you're like, is this even going to be read? Is this right. useful? It, um, it, it, like you said, it looks like a peanut butter approach to security. You know, I mean, just I'm globbing it all over the place and it's not thoughtful. It's not well designed. And it, it's a huge drain on your development teams, and especially right at the beginning. It's bam, I'm just giving you this. It's like a boat anchor. And it's a terrible first experience when you're starting a new development effort to have to fight through a 300 cell spreadsheet. Yeah, absolutely. And then couple that with the time it takes to, to turn that spreadsheet into something useful and actionable, but that's a whole other story. When it comes to the actual implementation and rollout, you obviously had a front row seat for most of that. You worked with our team a little bit. What did that look like on the JCI end? Yeah, we got uh, the opportunity to sit down with Security Compass and talk about its elements. One of the things that was pretty straightforward for us to understand, it was an easy, it was an easy um, process to explain to our development teams the value. When you take a security champion and it's worked in a spreadsheet and you say, okay, hey, just take this survey, answer these questions, and you'll see that this is a more refined set of requirements. Absolute you know, positive experience for their perspective. And it's so, it, it, what we, what I found exciting too about the tools is I could adapt the tool's requirements to include things that I, at GCI, we were particularly concerned about. So the ability to add those custom tasks that we really wanted that fit our unique process was invaluable. So you get a, a really good set of, of requirements from the tool that you guys at, at, at Security Compass have a curate. Uh, and then we can come on top of that and add some additional things that we know a particular focus for Johnson Controls that were important. So it's just, it's gave us a level of flexibility and this nice user interface that made it great for our dev, dev teams to work with. Yeah, it's, that's great to hear for sure. What was your security team's response to it fairly positive as it was rolling out? Uh, I'll be honest with you, I don't... I, you, you would have been hard pressed to find anybody who didn't see the value. You know what I mean? The, the only thing people, they're always, after going through the spreadsheet, they're always a little skeptical. 
oh, is this is, oh, I got to go to another web tool and I got to go do this. And so you, once you can overcome that first, hey, get in the tool and give it a try, then they go, gosh, I answer this little uh, survey. And then once I'm done with it, I've got this great set of requirements. Once you get them through that one time, I think they understand and buy into the, the principle of the tool. When you were presenting this to development teams in particular, what was their response? Did they see this as something that was going to be helpful to them? Without question, they do. Because in the past, they got this just peanut butter style approach. Is this every requirement of the site? And it wasn't thoughtful about the platform they were developing on. It wasn't thoughtful about the actual data they were collecting. It wasn't thoughtful about what jurisdiction they might be developing in. So it took... So we had all these requirements. And like you said, this was able to cut down the amount of time by answering these simple questions. They they got a very tailored set of requirements. So our development teams were absolutely thrilled to get it. The other part that they really thought was really a value add is our AOM integration. Once the security champion went through and completed the survey, then we turned on the AOM integration with our Jira platform or Azure DevOps. And we were able to populate all those tasks into their backlog. And then they're able to groom it and say, okay, it gave them priorities. And they were over the moon because in the past, if you had that Excel spreadsheet, guess what? I got to go copy all that stuff. And all these things add up to developers. Just one more. And it keeps them from actually writing code because now they're doing menial, you know, tasks like copying stuff from one plat, you know, one spreadsheet into an AOM system. So anything you can do to help a developer go quicker and get him into coding, he's going to be a happy camper. Yeah. And you, you always want to cut down on email and Excel sheets. Every time I speak to a developer or one of our, our customers that has developers at the table, they're always saying, I want to work in Jira or I want to work in version one or whatever system they use and their IDE and that's it. So being able to, present those controls uh, and, and the, the requirements to developers in the systems that they're already using every day has generally been something we've received a lot of good feedback about. So I'm, I'm glad the same, it's been the same at JCI. Yes. Is there a particular report or feature that you saw in the product and you were just like, wow, why did we not have this sooner? What Was there one kind of killer function that you thought was great? The thing that, like I said, I've already alluded to it. We just uh, completed our ISA Secure 6244341 SDLA certification. And for some of you that are not familiar with that, it's a great standard related to how you do secure development lifecycle for OT and SCADA systems. And if you're not familiar with that, I encourage you to go out and look at that. It's, it's also part of ISA, ISA 99 Working Group, but it's a really good program. And what was great about it is we went through the audit related to that. We, instead of having to have all this stuff articulated in some hand, handwritten policy somewhere, we were able to go in and show the auditor, show me where you do this. And so all we did was we would go into SD elements. We would show the task. I would look, type in a topic like, how do we do buffer overflows? How do we control? And I would just type that word in it. And then I could show him everywhere we generated a requirement related to buffer overflows. And you're like, gosh, and it would clearly articulate the correlation back to some standard that was published. That could be 
IEC 6203, it could be OWASP top 10, it could be SANS, all these different standards. And you could show that correlation between what the task was in SD elements back to one of these, these core standards that are principal to our security. And when they saw that linkage, the, the guys from, from the audit group said, hey, this is a great tool to simplify that audit process. And so it's paid huge dividends. It's probably, looking back, one of the great values that we found in using SD elements as part of our, our process for governance here at, at Johns Controls. So if you hop in a time machine and you go back to before SD elements existed, what did that 62443 certification process look like and preparing for that? So what we would have had to have done is we had a, so you think about it, I did have a set of security requirements, right? In an Excel spreadsheet. Now, in order to get all the, I think, I don't know how many tasks are in SD elements right now, but it's got to be north of what, 5,000? I don't know. It's crazy. Yeah, around like 3,000 or something. Yeah, it's, it's a ton. So you think about it. If I were to go list that on a single spreadsheet and, and then show, map those back to all these other standards, it would be this monster diagram showing all these relationships. So I could have never put together a, a set of doc, a document that showed all those relationships and covered every aspect of all those requirements from all those derivative requirement standards. So you think about it, it's simplified, greatly simplified our ability to be, to show our compliance with all these great standards out there. And it doesn't make you choose just one. See, that's the other thing too. It's really interesting is you don't have to, you don't have to be my, say, we're only going to be a 6243 shop, or we're only going to be a SOC 2, you know, type 2, that's all we're going to, or an ISO 27.1. You can be all of those. And one task may correlate to you know, a task or a requirement in four different standards. But by doing that one task, I meet that requirement on those other standards. I meet four of those things on. So that to me is a huge difference maker for us related to what we used to do in a spreadsheet. It would have taken, I would have had a staff of two or three people to go constantly just curate all these new changes and everything. And that all happens behind the scenes for us every time we get a new update. I mean, just invaluable in that experience. That's obviously great to hear. And developers are, are, I'm sure, also pretty eager to not have to deal with compliance as a four-letter word for some people. It, to know that you are completing tasks that are really just JIRA tickets for you and knowing that somewhere upstream, somebody is looking at that as being satisfying potentially several different compliance requirements. That's not like a discrete compliance task that I'm doing. That's just something that I'm building in as part of my software and somebody else is worrying about that. So it takes it away from being the developer's problem to, or even kind of like, like an abstraction layer, right? It's beginning like developers. I'd write abstraction layers. I've abstracted the whole construct of compliance and I've just given developers task. And that, that's where SD elements really becomes that hardware or that compliance abstraction layer it sits between the, all the requirements and the developers who are developing code. And it allows them to interface to a single system, but yet be compliant with, hey, gosh, I, last time I checked, there's probably 20 different regulations that are covered in SD elements. And so it, it, in that regard, it's a great value to us. Awesome. Thinking back to the implementation and how you've rolled things out, is there anything that you'd do differently or is there suggestions or advice that you'd have for other 
large enterprises that are rolling out a BDA tool like SD Elements? And that's a great, it's a great question, Kevin. I'm trying to think back from in our implementation, how things went. I, I think one of the things that it can be a little bit daunting at first is, and I think we did a pretty good job of this, but I think we could have done a little better. The first time you go through the survey, you got to be careful that you don't, the first time you hit that button and, and you choose and it generates all the requirements across all the phases. When you start looking at all the numbers across the top, I've told people, I said, you, you got to be careful not to make it look like the tsunami is getting ready to hit me because it, it can feel a little bit overwhelming. So I wouldn't, we, we got this idea about halfway through our implementation that we needed to uh, warm the water up slowly for the devs, right? You know, our dev team. So what you don't want to do is the first time they hit that AOM integration, all of a sudden they drop 200 tasks into their backlog. Uh, they go, holy cow, you guys are... So what we figured this out as we went through it. I wish we'd done a better job in the beginning, but is to set the policy kind of clipping level at a, at a way that you could ease them into it. So say, okay, guys, we're going to focus on tasks that have a, a certain score in above eight, nine, and 10, and instead of dropping everything on them from, from there. So I, that would be one thing I would say, be careful as you introduce these requirements tools, because if you're taking a very immature organization that hasn't really done this, the first time you run that tool, it can be a little bit overwhelming to the dev teams. They, and like you said, you got to, it's like my grandmother used to say, when they cook frog, you don't turn the water up and start boiling and throw the frog in. You you just put a frog in and you slowly warm the water up on them. And before you know it, you got frog legs, right? So that's the same story here. We're not, we, we don't want to destroy our dev teams with this huge list. We want to ease them into the security compliance over time. And you can do that you know, without much work. Yeah. And we find most organizations really take like a risk-based approach. Once you've identified what are those critical assets, those really high risk applications, those are the ones that you want to start with maybe a little bit more rigor and, uh, and others where there might be compensating controls. We might be a little bit more comfortable having that bar set a little lower. And I agree. And I think that's what I would just encourage folks. Don't be afraid to draw a line that theoretically you probably wouldn't want ultimately, but make your way there over time. Because you're always better than you were by using a tool. You're going to be, that's why I always tell my dad, guys, don't let perfection be the enemy of good. So get a better product and then get a better product and keep going after it. Uh, don't try to go after the perfect product the first time out. Because like you said, you only, you're, you're trying to make your product a little more resilient than your competitors, right? You want to make it a little bit tougher for that adversary to get a hold of it. Because if it's one more step, that means it's not worth my time. I'm going to go somewhere else. And uh, that's your goal in a lot of these uh, efforts. Absolutely. That's fantastic advice. So thanks a lot for, for kind of sharing your thoughts and your experience with SD Elements so far. Last thing I want to wrap up with you. What are you most excited about in the next few years of IoT? Gosh, the, the proliferation is going to be just phenomenal. You're, you know, I, I don't know, but if you guys looked at it, but I... I we just sold our home and then I, we've moved into a apartment here and as we're moving to our next one, I, I, I don't think we fully appreciate the level of control that we'll be able to exercise in our environments. And as I moved to my apartment, I, I, didn't, I couldn't waste the time to install a lot of the key components that I would have in my house. But I just, I didn't realize how much I've become dependent on it. I walk in the room, I say, you know, hey, Google, turn on the lights or whatever. And we don't have that, but I, I just, it's going to be exciting to see 
where that goes in the next 20 years and the level of, of integration that we're going to achieve is just going to get deeper. And it's, it's a concern without question. You've got to, we've, as security professionals, we've got to have that at the front of what we think about. But it, it's exciting to see just the level of integration that is beginning to really come to life across the board. It's just small home. You look at your your Google Wi-Fi or whatever you use, and you look at, I got 40 devices connected in a 1,300 square foot house. Yeah. What am I using 30? You don't realize it. And uh, But it's they're so much better than they were, and it's becoming so ubiquitous that you just get used to it, and it just happens. But as security folks, man, that is a lot more attack surface in my home that I got to be thinking about. And uh, so it just, uh, on one side, I love it. On the other side, it makes me a little anxious that I hope there are guys like me and you working for these companies, making sure this stuff's secure. Yeah, I feel once uh, once you know how the sausage is made, it's hard to not think about it from that angle. <laughs> I, my 85-year-old grandmother, watching her turn the lights on and off or check the scores of the baseball game or whatever she's doing with Google Home. And I think back to a few years ago where she wouldn't even touch a computer, didn't even know how to turn one on and watching the way it's just completely changing the way people interact with technology now, whether it's your thermostat, your doors, your locks, your lights, everything. It's incredible. And we're moving at such an incredible pace. And I'm, I think we're very lucky, as you said, to have folks like you making sure that, that these consumer and everybody else's products are secure and really taking this stuff seriously. Brian, I wanted to thank you a lot for your time today. Uh, it was really great talking to you. Any closing thoughts or uh, anything you wanted to share? No, I, I just say thanks again, Kevin. It's always a pleasure to work with great companies and who are trying to help us do a better job of doing security. So hats off to you and the team at uh, Security Compass for bringing some great products to the market to really go after security. So thank you. Thanks a lot. We appreciate your partnership, Brian. Have a good one. Can't get enough of the balancing act? Make sure to check out our website at www.securitycompass.com and be sure to subscribe for more episodes. Mm-hmm.